chapter 2. John chapter 2. First of all, I would like to thank Pastor Steve and Mike for most capably addressing, as Pastor Mike put it, the aspects of Discipleship 101 towards the end of John chapter 1. And for Pastor Steve, the personal relationship aspects of our relationship we have as Christ's disciples. They set the stage for our beginning today in chapters 2, verses 1 through 11. And this is the portion of John's gospel where Christ performs his first sign, his first miracle, and his public ministry commences. Let's read these verses together as we continue along this morning. And by the way, I think this morning we should have probably superlative skills of attention because we all slept longer <laughs> last night. And every Sunday morning we have a baptism. That tank behind me is hot. It's warm. I'm two feet up and I'm six foot five. I'm toasty up here. I don't know if you're toasty down there, but with that extra hour of sleep, I see everyone's eyeballs now. Hopefully that'll be the reality for everyone here uh, until we get to the baptism and then you could all sleep. Just kidding. Kaylin, we'll, we'll keep everyone. All right. Let's read verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water so that they might, so he filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor or the lesser wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I'd like to do three things uh, this morning before we conclude together. I'd like to address first some spiritual and theological understandings of this passage. Secondly, I would like to outline this event for you in these 11 verses along four brief lines. And then I'd like to conclude this morning with some practical spiritual applications for us to go home with. First, here are some spiritual or theological matters that we should consider regarding the passage we've just read. This is a gospel. As such, it is addressed to unbelief. And the development of the newfound faith 
of Jesus' followers. So unlike the normal applications of two-thirds of the New Testament, which is addressed to souls and churches already in Christ, we will plead with unbelief that in our midst, it may be that they need to be born again. You may need to be born again. And that pleading with those who have already known the Lord Jesus Christ, your faith may be grown as the disciples' faith was in the passage we just read. Next, we need to know that the story of this sign begins a new section for us in our study. From chapter 2, verse 1, through the end of chapter 12, this is the section of Jesus' public ministry. It lasts for three years. A few weeks ago, we said chapters 13 to 17. This is his private ministry with his disciples, and it covers just three days. Within chapters 2 to 12, which is three years of his public ministry, we have outlined for us seven major signs that he performed. And we find today the beginning of a smaller sub-theme within these chapters and at the commencement of these three years that I think is really important. This sub-theme is encapsulated in just like one word, the word new. New or brand new. Today we'll study the sign that brought new wine to a wedding. Next week, or the next time we study the book of John together in chapter 2, we'll have a reminder of a renewal of proper worship as Jesus deals with the wicked money changers in the temple. In John chapter 3, you know what renewal's there, right? It's a new creation. A soul made brand new in Christ, Nicodemus. And in chapter 4, we study new water, a new kind of water that Jesus offers the woman who had come to draw water from her well there in Samaria. And that water offered when it was received by the woman is able to transform. As we study over the next several weeks together, we all need to either praise God for being made new in Jesus or bow our knee to him and be made new. Remember, all seven of these signs are for one purpose, that those who see them would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So as we preach these signs, I would ask each one of you to draw the circle around your own heart and wonder and then know that you are a follower of him. Next. I feel it remains important for us, this being Jesus' first public sign or miracle, that it's the first of seven in John's gospel, and it occurs on the seventh day following John the Baptist's personal interrogation and pronouncement of Jesus as the Lamb of God. John uses this number of completion in the Bible in his writings to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He is everything 
God and he is everything man yet without sin. Third, I feel it's important for us to remember that Christ's first public sign is performed at a wedding. As a matter of fact, if you know Roman Catholic doctrine, they use this text explicitly to make marriage one of the seven sacraments of Roman Catholicism. They do so, unfortunately, because they would believe the participation in that marriage ceremony is a means of grace that would save their soul. So that's their support of work salvation, and we know the Bible doesn't teach that. But nonetheless, I think it's important for us to notice that his first public sign is performed at the occasion of a wedding. Since John has a creation motif or theme throughout the first four chapters of his gospel about the world being created and a number of things being made brand new, it is quite necessary for us to know that marriage is God's institution. The formation and institution of what's become known as the nuclear family is created and owned by God from weak one of human existence and it's equally so today any culture that seeks to take ownership of it alter it undo it will commensurately suffer the consequences of doing so children born into environments that aren't by god's design will suffer biologically socially and many criminally Societies throughout history that have sought to alter the institution of biblical marriage suffer cultural deconstructionism. They fall prey to higher crime rates. They will know and are knowing the increasing dark consequences of the dysfunction that those who seek to live in an environment of unnatural affection know. So young people... God didn't design you to test drive relationships by cohabitating with someone before you get married to them. God didn't design you to be sexually involved with someone you're not married to. He designed one man to be married to one woman, enjoying the domestic realities and marital intimacies he's created until death parts them, period. Anything outside this construct that any culture embraces and promotes will bring that cultural's gradual and alter, ultimate demise. Enjoy your marriage. Let's promote marriage and celebrate marriage as our Savior does as he breaks forth into public ministry. Finally, it's no small thing to notice that Jesus' first sign was changing water to new wine. The prophets of the Old Testament foretold of a coming new messianic age that would commence with the overflowing of new wine. Jesus knew that prophecy pretty well. He's the prophet, the priest, and the coming king. Jesus knew the day of his public ministry was this day, and it was the fulfillment of prophecy in the introduction of a messianic age. 
So let's remember those spiritual and theological things as we dive now into the outline of this text, these 11 verses together. Can I give you this outline up front to help us follow along? First of all, I'd like to discover the place of this event, the place of this wedding, and we see that simply in verse 1. Number two, I would like to talk about the people of this gathering, the place and the people of this gathering, and we notice from verse 1, the latter part of verse 1 through verse 9, we'll highlight those people and discuss them a bit uh, this morning. Then I would like to talk about the process, the process which led to the provision of our Lord, and then finally I'd like to conclude with the purpose of this event as outlined in verse 11. So the place of this event. This wedding was at Cana of Galilee. Now, we've got to discuss a little bit of what we call a cultural hermeneutic because it's really going to understand, help us understand the why of the practical applications when we get to conclusion this morning. Okay. This town would have been situated just a few miles from the town where Jesus grew up, Nazareth. Historians tell us that Cana's population at the time would have been just south of 100 people. This is rural small town stuff. As of today, there are no known ruins or excavations telling us exactly where Cana is. That's how small she was. You can Google it, and I have. You'll read some educated guesses, but really no one knows. They also tell us that Nazareth's population at this time would have been just north of 500 people. That's the town where Jesus came from. We know from history and from the study of scriptures that one of his disciples, Nathaniel, came from Cana. Jesus came from Nazareth with his family, and both communities were between six and 700 people combined. Nonetheless, we know that Jesus, his mother, and his followers are invited to this wedding, so it's safe to assume that these two towns would have worked together in agricultural industries or other industries they knew each other really well weddings and their celebrations of this day would have lasted for a week so when you're invited to the event you're no wedding crasher you're just a friend and regardless of the size of the town or those gathering for the event the event itself is no less celebratory as compared to how it would be celebrated in a larger city. So this is the place. It's a humble place. It's a modest place. Everybody knows everybody. And you get an invitation to this event, everybody likes everybody. So what about the people gathered at this event? Well, the text that we read said the mother of Jesus was there. That's Mary. She's pointed out first on the guest list. Many feel that she's such a close family friend and known as an organizer of sorts, and she may be playing actually the role of the wedding coordinator of this event. We don't fully know, but she is spoken of first by John, and she's at least keeping track of the availability of certain menu items. It seems Mary is invited alone by this time, she's a widow. 
After the story Luke tells us of Jesus being found as a boy doing his father's will in the temple at age 12, we don't hear about Joseph again. But here we find Mary remaining involved as an integral part of her community. She's well-liked and appreciated, and she's serving as a lead of some sorts at this community event. The text also tells us that both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. The small town reality was Jesus's small town. He'd grown up among these six to seven hundred souls for 30 years, and they like him. They invited him. This says much of Jesus's person. He's continued in the carpentry trade. In the absence of his father, Joseph, and as the firstborn son, Jesus has taken ownership of the care of his mother as she was widowed. This will become even more clear in our next point as we continue on this morning. But Jesus is single. He's in his 30s, has perfectly performed with the right disposition his mosaic responsibilities ceremonially, civically, morally, and domestically. He's done so while building personal relations with town, and they like him. Luke tells us in chapter 4 of his gospel that Jesus will return to this small town to address his friends a short time from now, from the timing of this text, and he would make a claim of deity and these people that he had grown up with for three decades who loved him well, that enjoyed this wedding with him, would pick up stones to kill him. But for now, he's at a wedding and he's a friend and not a foe. He brings along five friends. These are the men who used to follow John the Baptist and some others Jesus had asked to follow him. This is John, the unknown disciple that Pastor Mike spoke of last week the disciple that Jesus loved. He never refers to himself in a proper way in his own gospel, right? This is Peter, Simon, who would become Peter, Andrew, Nathaniel, and Philip. Any friend of Jesus is a friend of the family hosting the event. You just come to. The text tells us the servants are there, the hired hands to serve the food. The maitre d' is there. The head waiter, your Bible, calls him or describes him. He's the guy who, along with the bride and her mom, do the taste testing of the chef's food, set the menu, assist in telling the groom and his family what to order on behalf of the whole wedding party for the week's celebration. And then we have the groom. Well... In this culture, he and his family pay for everything. It was culturally acceptable for an engagement to be one year. So we know that this couple's probably been engaged for about 12 months. During that year, the groom was not only to prove he could hold down a job, but he was to build a house for the new couple. He and his family were to pay the whole week of the wedding celebration too. And, and actually in this time, if the wedding celebration ran short on any menu item during the course of the week, it was culturally acceptable for the bride's family to bring a lawsuit against the groom and his family for failing to provide for everybody for the week of celebration, causing public embarrassment 
for them not holding up their end of the signed agreement. I mean, come on, guys, who have daughters. Doesn't this all sound completely reasonable to you? (laughs) Especially me, I mean, having already married off two sons, we can draft all this information in a document and institute it right after my third son gets married in preparation for my daughter's wedding. It just makes complete sense to me. So that's the groom and his family situation. So it's assumed that many in these towns are gathered together to celebrate in unity in a well-organized event for a whole week. Now what's the process of the, the event? What's the process of the event? We find this in verses 3 through 10 that we've already read. Has anyone ever been to a wedding where something didn't go wrong? I have never participated in a wedding or been to a wedding where at least one thing didn't go wrong. As a matter of fact, you kind of even try to prepare for something to go wrong, and it still goes wrong. I remember participating in my sister's wedding. And even though much admonition was getting to make sure grooms had their pants zipped and bridesmaids and groomsmen did not lock their knees, certainly enough, there was one on both sides that didn't obey the admonitions, and we had embarrassment, and we had someone collapsing on the stage during the vows. Perfect timing. I've officiated multiple weddings where the groom or the best man forgot to bring the wedding license. And they're sweating bullets when they first see me. And they said, it's at home. One person said, I looked for it. I don't even know where it's at. Can we even get married today? Everyone's here. And I told the one guy, because I loved him, I said, no, you can't. Everyone's got to go home. It's over. Start replanning. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, we can do this. As a matter of fact, why don't you go ahead with my permission and and sign the thing yourself and send it in and you're still going to be legal. And in God's eyes, you're certainly uh, a thing. Ah. Thing where food or drink didn't become an issue. Hundreds of stories we all could tell. There's nothing new under the sun with this wedding at Cana as well. Only here, a lawsuit could happen (laughs) if there's a problem. As Mary oversees her duties, she's first reported to that they're out of wine. The best wine is always served first in this culture, and as the week progresses, secondary wine is offered. This should take them through the whole week if planning is done well. You see, in this culture, you can't drink the water, you'll get sick. You can't drink just from the fermented stuff either, you'll get sick or drunk too soon, and you won't be able to celebrate the whole week with the family. So Mary has a moment, and she knows she can't have a meltdown. She's got to be a problem solver and not part of the problem. She knows in her heart 
There's only one thing to do to prevent a public legal altercation. She goes to Jesus. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, what's your context with Jesus? Well, he's never performed the miracle yet. And he's 30. This is his first. And it's going to be even semi-public, we'll learn. She's reared this boy who then became a man who's been taking care of her as a widow and he's never done one thing wrong. Like, ever. He's a carpenter. Everyone that's worked in carpentry that has taught me how to do anything with wood has always used this statement. Measure twice, cut what? Once. Jesus never had to measure twice. And everything he built was the best of the best ever built, not just in small rural town Nazareth and, and Cana of Galilee. Every practical decision he made for his widowed mother was always right. He always obeyed as a kid, incurring the hatred of his siblings. most of whom never came to know him. And if they did, it was only after his resurrection. So Mary, having never seen Jesus perform a miracle, just goes to him knowing, yeah, he's God, but that's her son. But knowing his perfect help as a son and asks what they should do. Jesus, we're out of wine. Jesus respectfully answers his mother, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come, John writes. If we understand the language here, Jesus is basically saying, Madam, what does this situation have to do? And hang on with me. What does this situation have to do with you and me? Son and mother, mother and son. The us here wasn't the party. The us here wasn't the servants. It was just mom and son. What does this have to do with us? He's letting Mary know that there's about to be a change in their domestic relationship. He's letting her know that from there on, she could no longer come to him as a mother to a child for help. We know from the context why, right? He's about to launch a public ministry at the bidding of his heavenly father. From this moment on, in the fullness of time, Jesus knew God had sent him forth to do his will. For Jesus, Mary would always be honored as his mother. But we don't see Jesus referring to Mary as his mother again from this point forward until he's having a, a conversation when he's about to die on the cross, when he hands over his mother's care to John, who writes this There are two other times in John's gospel where Mary is mentioned, but never as his mother, just by her proper name. We'll study those later. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. This phrase, as many of you know, is the phrase that points to Jesus' week of suffering, his burial and his resurrection. Jesus knew that whatever sign was going to be done, it couldn't be fully 
public yet because the uprising to have him killed would come too soon. And at these words, Mary, who knows Jesus, always has the perfect solution, says to the servants, and we quote John, whatever he says to you, do it. She doesn't know how it's going to be done, but she's got 30 years of knowing he just got it done. And she confidently walks away, just knowing there's not going to be a lawsuit <laughs> or an uprising at the wedding that she is coordinated and is overseeing and that somehow wine will show up. Jesus sees the water pots used for Jewish ceremonial cleansing. Jews just cleaned everything ceremonially, from hands to feet to eating utensils and, and throughout their daily activities. And Jesus asks them to fill the pots to the top and this would be about 150 to 180 gallons of water. They do so. And Jesus says, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. They do. And folks, we have no idea when the water became wine. It just did. Jesus always does what's right in the right timing. The maitre d' applauds not Jesus, but the groom. He calls the groom from his seat beside the bride and possibly their families to the front of the occasion. He puts his arm around the groom and he begins to extol he and his family's planning skills. They have done an amazing job. As a matter of fact, the best job the text tells us tells us of any wedding he's ever been the head waiter at. It had gone from the best wine to the second best wine to a wine at the end of a week of celebration that's like no other wine he'd ever had. How could this be done? But it's done. The final part of the week of celebration would be more grand than the first. Jesus turned the situation away from the groom and the family being sued to a celebration of the groom and his family. Now what's the spiritual purpose of the event? John tells us in verse 11 that Jesus' glory would be manifested and his disciples believed in him. That's it. That's the tweet. That's the purpose. The glory of God in Christ would be revealed and that his disciples' faith would be affirmed. The glory of God is realized by those who already know Jesus and their faith has been made more confident. Jesus' first public miracle is semi-public. He knew that these five followers of his would face the best of the best of his ministry and the worst of his worst fates of the same. Jesus decided to bolster the faith of those closest to him, including his mother, in preparation for the journey ahead. And God does this first for us too. He grants us opportunities to be enjoyed 
now in progress for the purpose of enduring greater gospel progress on our futures, regardless of our circumstances. So this first incident in Cana is preparation ground for the glory of God to be revealed in Christ all the way through his resurrection and his ascension. And so we conclude with some practical applications this morning. First, we need to notice that here even Jesus' initial public evangelism was first on a very small scale. As a matter of fact, some would say that this was not even an evangelistic miracle at all. But we know that it was only by what the end of the book tells us in John 20, verse 30 and 31. These signs were done that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The evangelism then, since that text is true, happened to the servants who filled the pots and gave the wine to the head waiter. How many were there? We don't know. We just know there was more than one. How powerful is that to you and to me? Pastor Steve emphasized this last week in his message when he went through that little theology of crowds in the book of John. Do you remember that? And yet Jesus found his way first to minister to a handful at a time. So for all of us that have grown up in churches that really herald the great opportunities of VBSs or Grace Bible Day Camps and youth events and big evangelistic opportunities, know that those may come and they probably should, but our evangelism never starts there. It starts with those right around us in the natural rhythms of our life, and this wedding is a natural rhythm of the people's lives in Cana of Galilee and Nazareth. So when Jesus said, look up, lift your eyes to fields are white into harvest that's kind of like right around your own backyard your workplace where you go to the doctor where you exercise plenty of souls right there one at a time second maybe you noticed that this first sign was semi-public as we've already mentioned maybe you also noticed in your study of john that this sign unlike the other six called signs by john does not have an application given to it by John or by Jesus. The other six will. You see, this sign was really only recognized as a miracle by Mary, the servants, and the five disciples present. Maybe you remember that we discussed that earlier, that this sign happened unnoticed by most. We're just there from the small town. And yet, in its nature, it's no less a sign than the breaking of bread and fish that fed over 10,000 people. We've emphasized in the early parts of our study of the Gospel of John that we should not despise the day of doing small spiritual things in Christ's name. Your ministry, though you may deem it insignificant, has eternal benefit. What you do among two or three has no less spirit influence than preaching before hundreds does or for Christ performing a miracle before thousands. As you minister the word and eternal things, the same spirit of God that exists to promote the person and public ministry of the Son of God breaks the bread of your ministry activity and obedience in ways only the record of heaven will reveal and you will see it someday. 
Embrace your childcare work here. Embrace your sound booth work here. Embrace your ministry in song here. Embrace your teaching of the word to small groups or of children and youth here. Embrace your ushering and your valet work here. Embrace your safety ministry and ushering responsibilities here. Embrace your, uh, today, right? Today is Ordinance Sunday. Embrace your preparation for baptis- baptism and the Lord's Supper this evening. Keep taking your ibuprofen and get the t-shirt of the sons of ibuprofen here and keep investing in small labors, the day-to-day in this property for eternal purposes. God is breaking the bread of your obedience right here in many ways unto eternal purposes in our area, our state, our nation, and the world. He's doing We've been trying to show you this by introducing to you new births. There are new birth announcements, baptisms, and folks discipling and shepherding each other. We introduce to you new church planters to help throughout our country and new missionaries to aid the gospel in our world. We see this just in our own Christmas offerings each year, and you'll see it in a few weeks again too. We've announced to you Hundreds and thousands of churches and missions agents coming together to interdependent global gospel work together. And we have so many more to introduce to you. And in the next several years, as the Lord tarries, you will see a global network of like-minded saints working together for the advancement of the gospel of the Son of God. And we can find its beginnings right here and track them to you and your willingness to simply obey and live the gospel and God will do it he will continue to do it second application what can you learn from Mary's words spoken to the servants just do everything Jesus says take a breath just do everything Jesus says. Will you learn together with me this morning that this is the hallmark of saving faith? Simple obedience to God's word. Again, regardless of the size of the group or the people you work with in your home, your work, your ministry group, simple obedience to just do what Jesus says is proof that God's grace has transformed you. If we don't do what Jesus says, the jury is out on your soul still. And on mine as well. Just do what he says. I trust him. I get it. I've had 30 years. I'm good. Just do what he says. Some here have done some right things in wrong ways, and that's still wrong. Just do what he says with his disposition and honorable reverence and respect for the Father as Jesus did. Just obey. John writes later in 2 John 6, his second of three letters in the end of the New Testament, he said this is love. He defines love as obedience. Just do the commandments of the Father. That's it. 
Can we learn this too by way of a final application? Can we learn from this passage that the heart of Jesus melts when his children come and just simply cry one word? Help. Help. We stood in the lobby Thursday evening with people that tried to save a boy who was being burned alive. We heard from people, we wept with people who were screaming to other people, taking videos of his tragic death, screaming, help, come and help, help. The truth be told, not even first responders could help. So we stood around those sweet souls on Thursday evening and I'm being reminded of the message I'm going to preach this morning and we tell them that every time you go to Jesus when you're at an impasse on a roadblock and not even anything or anyone can answer your cry for help he does he does Every time. Remember having a conversation with Pastor Mike a few months ago, and we were discussing, you know, areas of our lives where we struggle personally. And, and I can remember him telling me, he said, You know, Pastor, he said, at some point, uh, Jesus has to be enough to us that if there was no one else in the world that we could cry out to for help, and it was just you and him, and you cried out for help, that his help would be enough help. And yet, look, he's given us his word. He's given us other believers. He's given us a body of gifted people. He's given us the indwelling of the Spirit, and yet he's enough. It's okay to cry help when you know there's no one else to help. And it's okay, my friends, to be satisfied with his help alone because he's enough he's enough what we hear as a kid you and jesus make a what make a majority i can't even remember the first context i heard that for it with us some things seem impossible but with god all things are possible in salvation and in sustained faith jesus is enough mary cries help her cry for help is not done publicly, but privately. It's just her and Jesus in a side room at the wedding. And he acted. You should cry help too and realize it's enough what he brings. Some here are in horrifying agony right now and you're there without Jesus. That's why you're in abject fear and terror because there really is no one that can touch and minister to your soul. And you just need to cry help. He'll save you. He'll forgive your sin. He'll heal your soul. And in the meantime... He says himself, Behold, I just stand at the door of your heart 
and I'm going to keep knocking. And if you will let me in, I will come in and I will eat with you. I will dine with you forevermore. Third, relationships are maintained in this story. I think that's so critical. When we do the will of God, as Jesus begins to do the will of his Father publicly here, notice how conscientious he is to make sure that what he does maintenances the ongoing health of his friends and his relationships. And then compare that to how you and I make our decisions in relationship to doing the will of, the, of God. Does it maintenance healthy Christian relationships? And if it doesn't, why? And if the why can be answered, then how do we get back to doing the will of the Lord as Jesus does it here and as Mary simply obeys and tells the servants, do exactly what he asks you to do? Finally, just through simple obedience and crying for help, we find our purpose realized. You will know the full glory of God through the help that Jesus offers. And your faith will be strengthened as a result. Let's pray together. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for the simple but profound story that launches Christ's public ministry. It's my heart's desire, we know it's our heart's desire, it's your desire that if anyone be here this morning that is without Jesus and is at the place where they just need to cry help, that they would do so and do so right now. This is a gospel, my friends, and with your heads bowed and your eyes closed and no one looking around, I will appeal to those of you who are without Jesus, who are then necessarily in agony. You have grief in your soul. You've come to your own end. And you heard this morning that there's one person who can help you, and that's Jesus. If that's your heart's desire, right now, God's not deaf. Would you just cry out to him and say, Oh, Jesus, I've tried everything. I've sought help from everyone. And it's all come from people who love me who have tried to care for me, but the help is not eternal, and I still hurt. And Jesus, I turn from myself, I turn from my sin, I turn from merely leaning on human help, and I beg you to help me. Lord Jesus, save me. Take me as your child this morning. I believe you are the Son of God. If you prayed that, my friend, Jesus heard you. He's welcomed you to his family. 
and you know his peace and you will continue to be strengthened in your faith as his child. If you prayed that prayer with our heads bowed and eyes closed, as quietly as you can with no one knowing, would you just slip up your hand if you prayed that prayer this morning? I'm going to take your face and your name with me and I'm going to pray for you and not embarrass you in any way. If you prayed that prayer to cry out to help to Jesus in that way, would you just lift your hand? I'd like to pray for you this morning. Anyone? Thank you. Praise God. Anyone else? Fathers, your spirit stirs our hearts and has stirred this one unto saving faith and belief in Jesus this morning as they've cried help. I pray that our faith would be strengthened and for this new one in Christ that their soul would know your peace that you would give us wisdom as a body how to best help them to grow in their, in their understanding of their newfound Savior. And as we listen, Lord, to this brief testimony in this baptism, may our minds and our hearts be kept alert to the reality of who Jesus is and what he longs to do in our souls for eternity's sake. In Jesus' name.